0: This podcast has been recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognise
1: that sovereignty was never ceded.
2: Would you like to do that part again? Yes.
1: <laughs> I thought that was perfect. There we go. Sorry, there you sorry.
2: Go. <laughs> I want to stop this.
3: No,
1: no, we'll just we'll yeah. just edit so this bit. This isn't in order, though. It starts with push alerts and we start with vertical video. It videos. says
2: one, two, three, yeah.
1: Oh, there you go. All right, right, so. three. Doors. All right, three, two, one.
2: Not like that. Wait, wait, no, go three,
1: two, one, and Here you go. Are we are this we good to mess. go? Um,
2: do oh. you want me to back announce and then you introduce the next one, or do you want to?
1: Uh, that sounds good. Okay, cool.
2: Three, two, one. podcast. We're your presenters, Alexandra Middleton
1: and I'm Kai Holroyd. Today you'll hear from our City Journal reporters on journalism innovations and the future of the field. We have reports on virtual reality, facial recognition technology and push alerts.
2: We will also be dissecting stereotypes about how different generations consume news media. But first we have a story on news companies exploring the use of vertical videos in storytelling. Here's Tyson, Rachel, Lisa, Patrick and Georgia with more.
4: Would you rather live without your mobile phone, or your toilet? Uh... The mobile phone was invented around 50 years ago, and according to Forbes magazine, by 2013 more people had access to them than toilets. The World Advertising and Research Centre has predicted that by 2025, 76% of people will only have access to the internet through their smartphone. content creators who care about the accessibility of their message, mobile technology is essential. Vertical videos, created in portrait mode suitable for mobile screens, are part of a new wave of tech innovation that ensures content isn't just for those of us who have access to a computer. Today we'll explore some of the big names playing with vertical content and their motivations.
5: It is clear why brands are jumping on the vertical video bandwagon with 79% of people saying a company's video has convinced them to buy a piece of software or app. Vertical video has been a feature of social media platform for advertising purposes for a while. However, we are now beginning to see the format being adopted by major Australian and international news networks, who are dedicating big budgets to the platform. With 87% of people saying they typically hold their phones vertically for general use, It is only logical for news networks to also utilise the emerging format in order to produce accessible news optimised for smartphones. Newspapers such as the Washington Post and Channel 7 and Channel 9 have taken advantage of TikTok and Facebook.
4: You wouldn't expect a 14-year-old to know or be interested in the Washington Post. But since its debut on TikTok in May, the centuries-old newspaper has amassed almost 150,000 followers. While the content does not align with the traditional reporting Washington Post is known for, it does introduce tidbits of news.
6: Let's record. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I am a dinosaur.
7: And I'm a giraffe!
4: The TikTok account is not the Post's first venture into vertical video. In 2015, the newspaper launched a vertical video player with its sights set on the 2016 presidential election. In place of long form, properly packaged reporting, they started using more explainers shot vertically. Us old guys lost the ability to get people to turn their phones sideways to watch videos. That's too hard, why fight it, said Michael Gelman, the Washington Post director of editorial video.
7: Hello, I'm Michael Usher, and welcome to the very first episode of the latest on Facebook Watch. These are the moments Australia is talking about today.
5: On August 5th this year, Channel 7 became the very first major news producer in Australia to publish a news show in vertical orientation, with veteran journalist Michael Usher at the helm. The series has consistently garnered significant audiences on the broadcaster's national Facebook page, with hundreds of thousands of viewers tuning in nightly. The show peaked at 1.5 million viewers on September
2: 5th. Hi, I'm Sylvia Jeffries and welcome to Nine News Watch, a nightly news bulletin made for you right here on Facebook.
5: On the very same day as Channel 7's launch of the latest on Facebook, Channel 9 also began a new series tailored for social media called Nine News Watch. Notably, Channel 9 opted to produce their videos in landscape orientation, forcing users to flip their device to get the full experience. At this stage, both programs capture similar audience numbers, but as digital news consumers move into the future with new expectations and customs, will those who don't adapt to the changes begin to fall behind?
4: The progression from landscape to portrait orientation may seem rather obvious to the consumer, But producers taking the risk of publishing content in a new format puts audience interactions and accessibility on the line. And that's where the money starts to talk. In an interview with Facebook Business, filmmaker Pablo Rochet said publishers end up having to create something bold, simple, straightforward and fast in order to stay relevant. Something news companies are always looking for. Vertical video as a format is simple and fluid. Two concepts that usually stand out in most good technological innovations today. Viewing important stuff in the way we look at our phones most of the day just makes sense. So expect more of it soon. You've been listening to Patrick, Georgia, Tyson, Rachel, and Lisa. Thank you very much.
2: an interesting concept. News companies exploring vertical videos is definitely going to be changing the way we ingest news in the future.
1: All right, coming up, we have a story about virtual reality and how journalism can be using it going forward. Here is Abby and Sammy. I've decided to sponsor a hockey team made up entirely of chimps. I'm tired of people telling me that chimps are not capable of kicking human ass in sports.
8: If you thought that was popular podcast presenter Joe Rogan, then you'd be wrong. This audio is taken from a new style of virtual reality called deepfake. Technology like this opens up the discussion about ethics in the new age of technology, virtual reality. New projects based on virtual reality have begun to emerge among storytelling journalists and media corporations.
0: We're here to make virtual reality the next major computing platform.
8: Mark Zuckerberg wants to integrate VR with daily life, connecting people together on a multi-sensory level. But founder of Oculus VR headset warns of a whole new set of media ethics questions that has now entered the journalism arena.
9: I think the outlets are going to have to be really responsible with, with this new technology though because virtual reality, if used irresponsibly, does have the potential to, I guess, create false equivalency between something that actually happened and something didn't happen.
8: If VR is the next obvious step for journalism, is it also the next step for fears of fake news? people already struggle to distinguish fake information from factual news. How can we ensure that the general consumer's media literacy is prepared for VR? VR has the grave potential to both further undermine discourse and increase general distrust in news media. VR journalism originated in 2012 at the Sundance Film Festival when documentary journalist Noni Pena presented Hunger in Los Angeles about the lack of food in poorer LA neighbourhoods. Noni wanted to combine traditional reporting with emerging virtual reality technology to put the audience inside of the story.
10: And then we also recreated a street scene in which a young girl is singing and a bomb goes off. Now when you're in the middle of that scene and you hear those sounds and you see the injured around you, it's an incredibly scary and real feeling.
8: She recreates the scenes because they're too disturbing to show. Will audiences be receptive to a hyper-realistic form of immersion? Can it be taken too far and be too distressing for a majority of news audiences? Most importantly, is it real journalism? The moment at which our
10: bodies and our minds really believe we are someplace else, that is an experience that really threatens deliberation and judgment.
8: Can transparency and authenticity still exist? Have you ever read a life-changing piece which transported you to the story world? You become a part of the scene. Seri- seeing, hearing, smelling, sweating. You're completely immersed. But what happens when we can make it real? With the growing prevalence of virtual reality technology as it improves and becomes more accessible, what ethical dilemmas will journalism, will journalists face in trying to present stories through VR? Today I have Samantha Burgess here with me to discuss some of these issues. Welcome, Samantha.
11: Hi, Abby. Thanks for having me. Yes, it is hard to see exactly where VR is headed with technology advancing so rapidly, but it is an ethical minefield. Firstly, in a world where disinformation and misinformation undermines democracy, deepfakes present a new frontier for spreading misleading material online. And a deepfake
8: is essentially a computer-simulated video where someone is saying or doing something they haven't said or
11: done, yes? Right. There are already numerous examples – as the technology becomes increasingly automated by artificial intelligence. And it's not only simulated video. There are programs that can take a few sentences of speech and use them to mimic voices, as Bloomberg's Ashley Vance found out last year.
8: Any words I put into the app can be played back in my digital voice. And here's the crazy thing. Even words I never actually said in the first place.
7: Artificial intelligence technology seems to be advancing very quickly. Should we be afraid...
8: But are
11: we only still in the technology's infancy? Absolutely. And as this technology advances, the more difficult it would be for the general public to spot deepfakes, especially when they are embedded in the world inside something like a VR headset. So should journalists be advocating against VR? And how hard is it to fact check? There are some ways to fact check this type of media. Journalists like they do now with reverse image searching Will now be tasked with reverse video searching in order to find the initial source to determine whether a video should be deemed as authentic or not. Additionally, in October 2019, Brooke Binkowski from fact checking site Truth or Fiction found that people working in tech needed to create some sort of irrefutable way to encode their origins into the metadata. We must also acknowledge that similar fears were raised through the increased use of Photoshop, but consumers are adapting to being able to spot edited photos. Furthermore, campaigns by journalists and fact-checking campaigns will be needed to continually help inform the public to be wary of disinformation. For example, throughout the latest Argentine election, fact-checking site Reverso has launched an ad campaign showing political figures juggling footballs, playing guitar solos and doing the splits. That sounds interesting. Thank you, Samantha.
8: So VR is clearly a very controversial topic at the moment and we'll have to see how it unfolds.
1: Well, that was really, really interesting, guys. Thanks for that. I'm really looking forward to seeing where virtual reality goes in the future.
2: Now we have a story about facial recognition technology. Here's David, James and Viv.
12: (coughs) Most of the current issues highlighted by the media are negative. For example, identity theft, privacy and unwanted surveillance and even issues with accuracy and discrimination. However, these issues are merely one side of the coin. For example, just two months ago, New York police were able to apprehend an accused rapist within 24 hours using facial recognition technology. Yes, inaccuracy is a potential issue, but if used in the right means, it can be an incredible force for good. Fortunately for us, we've got an expert in criminal law with us today in the studio. Joining us now is David Forster, a now retired lawyer with over 45 years of experience. Hi David, and welcome to our podcast. Viv,
13: did you want to take over? So tell us, David, about your thoughts on facial technology and are you in favour of it?
7: Well, I think it's a bit scary. Um, Walking around the city of Melbourne, I don't necessarily want photographs of me. And um, I think it's very important that the whole facial recognition business is very regulated.
13: And with the current state of facial recognition technology in China... And the social credit system being implemented, do you see that happening in the Western world too?
7: Well, obviously that'll depend upon the uh, political persuasion of individual governments. Obviously, in China, it's uh, there's over there's millions of people that are being watched, and the Yuga. Muslims, for example, a population of over 100 million pe- uh, one million people is being uh, monitored very closely by the Chinese authorities. So the issue becomes, how far can this uh, technology be used?
13: And if it was implemented, how would that affect the legal system in Australia, for better or for
7: worse? Well, a, that's a pretty wide question. In the old days, You'd have identikit line-ups, you'd have mugshots, you'd have passports and you'd have old-fashioned cameras. In the future, what may happen is that policemen will have cameras with them, they'll go to a a crowd protest and then they'll take pictures of the people and then they'll take it back and then analyse it and then work out who they're going to be charged with, uh, offences. So... I think the issue, it's a question of, is the power going to be abused? Who's going to regulate the use of the power? And what is the individual response of the citizen to being watched?
13: In September this year, the UK High Court ruled that use of facial recognition technology by the police in public was lawful. Whilst this precedent is persuasive, not binding, do you think Australia would adopt this too?
7: It's hard to say. The decision is on appeal currently. In that case, a man was charged by the police for offences involving him shopping and also him attending a protest. And it opens up the issue of, you know, how far do we want to become a police state? And in my view... In Victoria at the moment, people are quite anxious about being followed by cameras.
12: Thank you, David, for your time. Pleasure. It's obvious that for public safety and security applications, the possibilities are limitless when it comes to facial recognition technology. But for all the buzz that this technology generates, it's important to recognise that the technology is still in its relative stage of infancy and will only advance further possibly becoming more invasive to the public's privacy as it progresses.
2: It'll definitely be interesting to see how facial recognition technology is used in the future.
1: Yeah, there you go. Coming up next, we've got a story on push alerts, those little notifications you get on your phone telling you when news is breaking or that someone's tagged you in a Facebook post. Uh, Here is Nick, Jonathan and Isabella.
0: Hello there, and here is your news bite on push notifications. You're with Nick Angus.
6: O. McGrath. And Isabella Cribbit.
0: Today, we will be covering the how and why before heading into a discussion around this technological phenomenon. Push notifications are created using two distinct application programming interfaces, commonly known today as APIs. The first is the Notifications API, which allows the developer of an app to display their desired notification to the consumer. And the second is the Push API, which works to disperse notification content from an organization as well as ensure that these notifications will continue to appear on our devices, despite whether the main app is running or not. The combination of these two APIs leads to a formation of a powerful technological force. Push notifications can be curated according to an individual's needs, taking into account factors like frequency, topic, sounds and persistence.
6: In a study conducted by the Tower Center for Digital Journalism and the Guardian US Mobile Lab, it was discovered that seven of the outlets examined sent ten or more alerts in a single day. In the same study, it was found alerts are no longer restricted to breaking news events. Over two-fifths of alerts sent from outlets' iOS apps were not about breaking news. Ten publishers sent more non-breaking news alerts than breaking news ones. Furthermore, a research study conducted by the European Association of Social Anthropologists estimates that a slaughter would sift through 4,000 to 5,000 pieces of information per shift. Let's have a chat about this.
9: Yeah, well, I think push alerts are a clear sign of how society, and more importantly, news mediation and consumption in society, has changed. So, obviously, push alerts have changed the way that news outlets operate so much that the slotters, like you said, are employed with the task of sifting through all data stories and deciding which ones are important enough to send out. They also have the role of deciding which news stories to push out to which users. So, it seems like push alerts are creating more jobs in the journalism industry. What do you guys think?
6: Well, that is until they become (laughs) self-governing.
9: That's a good point. (laughs) So, the work of these slotters shows just how push alert customization works. People can decide what content they wish to see more of on their home screens, and it's up to the news agencies to decide which alerts to push to them. It's a clear case of how journalism has changed. Slotwork shows what content mobile users respond to more and also allows journalists to navigate the fast and dense channels of digital information. Push alerts, while pushy, benefit the consumer. They can tailor and personalize them to suit their needs. They also benefit the news outlet, which can get their best content to the most relevant audience.
6: Now, how do push notifications work? In theory, it is helpful to have reminders of things to follow up, to check, to play and to read. Life is so busy and push notifications are intended to bring our attention to important, often urgent things. However, there are nuances to this objective's obstacles. I mean, how often does your phone ding or buzz and it sends a feeling of dread down your spine and when you see what it is, you're disappointed you even got it? News notifications should work, and they often do, but its success comes down to the user. If you don't want to know anything about anything or leave it to your own initiative to seek information, then you may opt to have no push notifications. It's likely you may be less informed on news issues and media concerns as they arise, but it can improve your self-discipline. Do you think you guys are good at looking your news notifications?
0: I think it's an interesting point to raise. Uh, you can get so many in one day that sometimes it is hard to sift through every single one that pops up on your screen. So I'm not the best at that, I would say, because there are so many that can pop up in one day.
9: Yeah, I feel like I get the most important stuff on my home screen and I can just quickly scroll through and see what's
6: breaking and what's current. So I think in that respect, I am pretty good at it. It's also easy to stick with looking at the headline and then swiping it away, just to clear your mind. <laughs>
13: exactly, exactly.
6: On the other hand, having many and frequent news notifications, as you two pointed out, can be overwhelming, and your attention may be strained to read it all on top of IRL responsibilities. Push notifications are a basic element of our media consumption and literacy, especially when it comes to mobile phone usage.
9: Yeah, Commonly, we rely on being told what we should be told, but it is wise for the user to take their notifications into their own power – That way, one can enhance our technology and use usage to balance our daily needs without getting under or overexposed.
0: Evidently, they help fuel the fast pace and should be considered an individual's tool and not a hindrance. Don't forget to unplug and, as always needed, relax.
2: And for our final story of the podcast, we have Tamara and Emily Lane talking about stereotypes of how different generations consume, engage and think about media forms, communication theories and models.
10: Since the early 1920s, people have been theorising the different ways in which audiences receive information. In summary, they are either passive or active. The hypodermic needle theory was highly prominent between the 1920s and 1940s. It assumed that audiences were passive, homogenous, and accepted everything they saw in the media as the whole truth. However, in half a century, this assumption deteriorated. The 1960s and 70s were a time of significant change in the West. Gender and race equality were on the rise, and the government as well as the media were challenged. The uses and gratifications theory emerged during this time and proposed that audiences were active in their consumption of the media. It observed how people use the media to gratify a range of needs including their need for information, personal identity, integration, social interaction and entertainment. So what happens when the information audiences are being fed is incorrect or misleading? This is called
3: disinformation or misinformation. Disinformation is false information, which is intentionally spread in order to persuade public opinion or manipulate the truth. An example of this is photoshopping someone into a photo or removing an object from an image.
10: On the other hand, misinformation is misleading information sent, which unintentionally influences public opinion and warps the truth. An example of this is an error or oversight in research, which results in broadcasting the wrong information. So... You may be wondering, how do
3: different generations view misinformation and disinformation? Well, studies show older generations to be disproportionately susceptible to spreading fake news on social media. Research by New York and Princeton universities show older users share more fake news than younger ones, regardless of their education, sex, race, income, or how many links they share. In fact, age predicted their behaviour better than any other characteristic, including party affiliation, according to The Verge. And
10: the New York Times reports, on average, American Facebook users aged 65 and older posted seven times as many articles from fake news websites as adults 29 and younger, according to a study by Science Advances in 2016. So, how are people dealing with myths or disinformation?
3: The internet has provided both a greater quality and quantity to the news we consume, but the flip side of this is also a greater quantity of poorer quality news in circulation. A recent report about the digital news revolution effects on Australians by the University of Canberra in February 2019 has shown that Australians have become alienated from the news altogether, with 28% of Australians feeling worn out by the volume of news available to them and 88% of those choosing to simply avoid it. With more unreliable sources spreading, 62% of Australian news consumers are now quite worried about what is real or fake on the internet. The result is content with the scaremongering effect. People
2: are becoming fatigued and choosing to turn a blind eye to news altogether. That was definitely interesting to think about. I know for me, I still consume news on the TV and usually on social media. It'll come up on Facebook and every now and then if there is a print newspaper lying around, I'll definitely have a read of that as well.
1: See, maybe, maybe I'm just, you know, retro, but I'm a, I'm a sucker for print media and, you know, the radio. So that's sort of how I get most of my news.
2: That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We've heard a range of stories about journalism, innovation and the future of journalism. I'm Alexandra Middleton.
1: And I'm Kai Horroide. We'll have more Breaking the Podcast coming soon. Stay tuned.